You can open up your copy of the Bible, if you have one, to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 12. But I'll give you a few minutes to find that. I wanted to uh, say, as I typically try to, uh, to say thank you to you, uh, to each of you, whether individually or collectively, uh, for your generosity as a church uh, in recent days, that you are taking from what the Lord has granted to you, entrusted to you, and using some of it to give into a common fund for us to use for missional purposes here in our community and around the world. There's been some sweet fruits of that that I, I get to see sometimes that you don't get to see. Uh, one was just getting to see even this week. There was a, a large group of elementary schoolers who gathered here to start doing a Bible study through the Gospel of Mark this summer while they're off of school, uh, coming in even on a different day of the week and coming together to read the Bible and then going about that the rest of their week. So thank you parents, our grandparents even, who are working with them on that. Uh, but another fruit of your your generosity has been uh, Adam and Claire Pennard being able to go to the pastor's college down in Louisville uh, this school year. Adam's graduation was just yesterday, so they sent me this picture of, of him and Claire and Asher. Uh, so they just wrapped up school, and they're actually moving back this week uh, to their house in North Manchester, where they're hoping, Lord willing, with our help to plant a church within the next couple years. Uh, so I'm just rejoicing that uh, they were able to make it through this year. And your generosity, some individually and some from us collectively, as a church helped make that happen uh, for him to be able to give diligent study and be developed uh, toward that end of church planting and so I'm excited to have them back uh, they should be with us Lord willing even next Sunday uh, so you can give congratulations to them in person another thing uh, just a, a sweet update is that uh, Ben Shaw uh, who I've been telling you about he's actually in the U.S. now uh, he actually went to Louisville for that graduation because he had some other friends that were graduating from that school as well but he's actually going to lead us in music next Sunday. He's going to be uh, here next Sunday, so you can look forward to giving him an American welcome. When he landed uh, in Charlotte, that was his first stop, he sent me a message saying, I just landed in the best country on earth, and I think he meant it. Uh, so I, he's glad to be here, uh, but we can give him a warm welcome in person next Sunday. But thank you for your generosity, uh, the many ways it enables ministry here in our community and surrounding communities and even all over the world as we send men and women out with the gospel. Uh, all right. If you have found Hebrews chapter 12, uh, you're going to see pretty quickly as we get into this text that it talks about running and even long distance running. And I have a deep respect for long-distance runners. I like to think that I will be like them someday. I dabble in running, but I have never dedicated the time and energy that it takes. But long-distance running, I'm talking like marathons and what people call like ultra-marathons, things like that, they require an incredible amount of mental discipline and physical determination. I think that our close to being unrivaled in other sports, if I dare say that as somebody who loves other sports as well. But they come up to the limits of what any human body is really capable of doing. Uh, and then they keep going. They keep taking steps. They keep running and running and running beyond what felt possible to them or to others. And there, there is a toughness and a determination about long-distance runners that I deeply admire. And it was kind of humorously captured, this unique toughness of long-distance runners uh, on a I think I saw it on a cross-country team, team t-shirt one time years ago, but I've seen it other places since then. Uh, but this cross-country team on their shirt, it said that our sport is your sport's punishment. That's the way they said is that uh, you don't, and what they were getting at is that if basketball players are acting up in practice, their coach tells them, go run. 
and keep running, right? That's punishment for them. Uh, but if runners are acting up in practice, their coaches don't say, go shoot some free throws or something like that, right? Like there's a unique hardness and difficulty to long distance running. And long distance running has been around as long as there's been humans. It's an ancient sport. It existed way before soccer, basketball, hockey, these sorts of things. Uh, even in the ancient world, people would have been very familiar with long distance running. They would have uh, competitions for it. They would have been very familiar with it. And amongst the activities that existed back then athletically, long distance running is the sport that the author of Hebrews picks to compare the Christian life to. He, he looks at long distance running and he's, you're going to see in this text that he compares Christian living, the, the long run of faith to endurance running, long distance running. And so we're going to look at these first three verses where he really zeroes in on this idea in particular. Uh, if you've not been with us through the book of Hebrews, that is okay. Uh, but we've been in it for numerous months. We have a few more sermons left in it. Uh, but what we've seen throughout this letter is that we don't know who the author was, uh, but we do know some things about the recipients of it, that they were these very early Jewish Christians, people who'd grown up Jewish but who've come to faith in Jesus after he was crucified and raised and ascended to the Father. But they were being tempted as they started to receive some opposition and flack, difficulty for their faith in Jesus. They were tempted to stop running that race and to go back to the way they'd run before, to go back to Jewish customs, Jewish practices. And what we saw most recently in chapter 11 leading up to where we'll be today was what some people call this hall of faith, like a play on words with the hall of fame, where the author was pointing these Jewish men and women back to Jewish men and women who'd come before them of, and shown them that they endured in faith through opposition and difficulty, persecution at times, they endured in faith. And he's, he's calling them now as he gets to chapter 12, he's going to shift from sharing examples to giving exhortation to saying, hey, I've shown you all these examples, but the reason I showed you all these examples was to call forth that same response in you, to call you to do the same, to keep running this race of faith. And so I'm going to read this text for us. It's short, just three verses, um, but there's much I think that the Lord could say, and I trust that he will say to us uh, through this text. So if you, follow, if you found it, uh, Hebrews 12, follow along with me as I read Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. This unknown author of Hebrews continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. I'd summarize the message of this very familiar text that many of you have probably heard and read countless times. I'd summarize its message with two simple words, and that's the title of this morning's sermon is Keep Running. Keep Running. 
That's the simple core message of this text, is to keep running. And it's very clear that this is the metaphor he's using, right? The central command of this little short passage is in verse 1, the end of it, where he says, let us run with endurance, right? Let us run with endurance. Uh, They are not commanded here in this text, and we're not commanded just to walk, right? But he, he specifically says to run, that there's this race that we are to run, but we're to run in a certain way, right? Uh, that we are to run, not, he doesn't say run with speed, the race that is set before you. He says run with endurance, the race that is set before you. And the, the reason I think the author calls them to that is because he knows what he alludes to at the end of verse 3. That we will, if we live long enough in the Christian life, if we run far enough in the Christian life, we will be tempted, right, to grow weary or faint-hearted. That will happen to us. It may happen to us multiple times in our life as a Christian. Those, that'll be the temptation we face. And though I have never experienced this in physical running, I've heard people who have, uh, who've run distances far longer than me, they talk about how you can come to this point where you hit the wall. Have you heard of this phrase before? Like where you get to this point and running where... Uh, People try to describe it. I don't know what that's like because I've never hit it. Uh, But where your body feels like it has just run out of reserves, where it's run out of energy, where you feel like I cannot keep going. Like I literally cannot pick up another foot and put it down. Uh, But runners, uh, they have ways to prepare for that mentally uh, beforehand. And they have ways to even in the moment as that experience comes upon them to press through that, uh, to, to keep going. It's not that every person who ever hits the wall just falls flat they often keep going through it they find ways to, co- to be compelled through that wall and this text in some ways was like advice from this author to the recipients and from the spirit of God even to us who read it today of how to in our spiritual race to prepare for hitting that wall to prepare for those moments where we feel like I cannot keep going, like I feel like I must give out, I must give in, I cannot keep going, I cannot keep trusting God, I cannot keep sacrificing for him. This text gives us some ideas of how we can prepare for that. So we're not startled by it and we're not falling victim to it, but that when it comes in our life, we're ready to press on through it. And so this text gives us, just like runners in in real life running may have tactics that they prepare themselves with or that they utilize in that race, this text, I think it gives us four tactics that we can use to help us as Christians to keep running, to keep pressing on in this race of faith. And since there's four, I'll have to be brief uh, with each of these, but I want to show you them in this text and try to apply them to our life to help us keep running running. So tactic number one that we can do uh, to prepare for hitting that wall and to prepare to keep running when it happens, this may feel odd to us, but the first one is to remember your predecessors, to remember your predecessors. Uh, This text starts, this chapter 12 starts with the word therefore, right? So he's pointing them back to what he's just been saying, all these examples he's been giving of Enoch and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Sarah and all these people. He's been giving examples of their faith and how they endured in faith. He's tying all those stories he just showed them in those displays in this hall of faith that he's walked them through. He's now turning a corner and saying, because of that, he says, let us also 
right? Like, let us do the same thing. Let us follow in their footsteps. Remember your predecessors. And he describes all those people that have come before them in verse 1 as so great a cloud of witnesses, right? That's kind of sounds like a weird phrase to us, but a, a cloud back then they would have referred to as just referring to a large number of people. Uh, some of you, I think, went to the Indy 500 last weekend, or I watched some of it on TV where there's hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, you kind of look out at that crowd, and it's like just this cloud, this sea of people out there that you can't really number. It's hard to quantify. This author is saying, with people of faith, it's like that. It's not just Noah and Abraham and Sarah. There's this great cloud of witnesses, people whose names you don't even know, but they have endured in faith. They have trusted God to the end. Uh, they, they have pressed on in faith. And he's saying, since we have them as an example, let us also do the same. Uh, let us learn from them. Let us follow in their footsteps. Since we have these witnesses, let us run with endurance also. Let us press on in faith. And I, I think that I have sometimes misunderstood this image when I've uh, thought about this text, because I've read it many times, like some of you have. I think sometimes when I have thought of this image of us running a race and there being this crowd of people, this cloud of people, I have thought in some ways that they are uh, witnesses of us, like that they're watching us, like that they're these people cheering us on, that they're these people applauding us, that you can do it, like keep pressing on in faith. But I think the more accurate way to think of this text and what the author is trying to say is not that they are witnesses of us running, but they are witnesses to us. Like that their example is testifying as witnesses to us of what is possible in faith. That we can endure, that we can press on because they did it. It's not so much that they need to look on to us, but that we look on to them. That they are witnesses to us. That heaven is reachable. Right? That pain is endurable, right? that fear is conquerable, that finishing in faith is possible no matter what comes. And there is something motivating. I think we all know this. There is something motivating in our human psyche when we know somebody else has gone before us and done this thing. Right? When we know that I'm not the first. Like sometimes we feel tender to think, I, I'm the trailblazer on this. Nobody's ever done this before. And it can feel daunting and fearful. Like, am I even capable of this? Is this feasible to do? But when we know even one person has done this before, that's motivating, right? Uh, that when we see that a trail has been blazed through the woods, that means we know many people have gone down this path before, right? And the more numerous, the more vo higher volume of people that have gone down this path, the more confidence that should give to us that I can do this as well. Not on my own, but this is possible. It is possible for me to press on in faith. I am not the first. And may we be people, just as these readers were called to learn from their predecessors, to remember them, may we be those type of people as well. May we not give in to, I think as Americans we fall victim to this we, because our country is like, we like being trailblazers and independent and cutting edge and that sort of stuff. I think we have a low view of history, a low view of people who've come before us and think, oh, we're better than them. We've got this figured out or we'll figure out a new way to do this. We need to repent of that and learn to value people who've gone before us, uh, to look to their life as examples that they maybe supersede us in some ways and that we can learn from them. And so may we be people who are 
we're looking at the people that are still living today, that are older than us, who've gone before us and learned from their example. But may we also be people who learn from history. Uh, Abraham wasn't alive for them to talk to. Moses wasn't alive for them to talk to, but this author had pointed them back to them. And may we be people who learn from dead saints. They're now alive in heaven, but may we learn from them historically uh, their examples of faith. Just as a very quick plug, later this summer, there's still some details being worked out, uh, but John Sloat is actually going to be teaching a Sunday school class about church history, like an overview of some church history and pivotal points in it. I would encourage you to try to come to that. Uh, There's much that we can learn from kind of looking backwards in time and learning from men and women who've gone before us in the way that they preceded us in faith. And so the first tactic to help us keep running in faith is this remembering of our predecessors. Uh, To not be short-sighted and just think that we have it figured out or we're the first people, but to remember people who've gone before us in faith. That will help compel us forward. The second tactic, though, that you see in this text, it also appears in verse 1, I would phrase this way, is to remove all impediments. To remove all impediments. An impediment, sometimes we just use that term with speech, like a speech impediment, like I can't get my lips or tongue to quite work right to say the words or phrases correctly. Impediments can be much broader than that, though, as well. Like, and what he's getting at here is things that are impeding the taking of steps, the impeding of being able to run freely and with endurance. He, so he tells them, he says in verse 1, to uh, lay aside, let us also lay aside, then he says two things to lay aside, every weight And then he says, and sin, which clings so closely. And what he's doing here, he's alluding to a practice that they would have been familiar with of runners in their day. Uh, They didn't have like running shorts and things like that. Like we have today, they would have had much different clothing that they would run. But there's a few things that if they were getting ready to run, that they would remove, that they would take off. So weights would be one. Like if I go to the YMCA today, I still see guys walking around with these like weights around them so they get stronger by running with these weights on. Uh, They would do stuff like that in ancient days as well, that in training they would sometimes strap these weights to themselves, attach them somehow to run and get stronger. But when it came time to run the race, they're not keeping that on, right? They're, They're discarding that thing. They're putting it down on the ground so now they can run with the full strength that they've gained through the training. So that would be the setting aside of weights. But they also, uh, we don't have pictures of how they were dressed back then, but they would have typically had these longer uh, garments of sorts that would have been down even around their knees or around their feet. That If you can imagine trying to run in that, uh, like running in a skirt or something like that, that would be hard to do. I've never tried to do that, but I'd imagine it would be hard to do. uh, That if you were starting to try, especially to run a long race, you would take action before you even started to like pull those up or even tie it over your belt something like that or it might have been something they could have just discarded uh, for the purpose of that race but if they didn't those things would have clung closely to them right as they're doing more than just walking they're trying to run and they're becoming sweaty and all these things these things would have clung to them and kept them from running well kept them from running far and so he's using this image of discarding those things laying aside those things and we still do this today 
I have done the mini marathon a couple times, not fast, so do not be impressed by that at all. But the mini marathon in Indianapolis where there's these thousands and thousands and thousands of people who are about to run uh, this half marathon. And what you see happen there, if you pay attention, as you go through the starting line, on this side of the starting line and on that side of the starting line, along the sides of the street, there's all sorts of like sweatshirts, just laying on the ground or jackets or knit hats or things like that that are just strewn on either side of the course. And what that is is people wore those things down, like if it was cold or something, they wore those things down to get ready for the race, but they don't want those things when they're starting to race, so they're willing to just chuck it. Like they just, I don't need this anymore, they just lay it down, that jacket can be gone, that hat can be gone, somebody else can have it, but I'm determined to run this to the best of my ability. That's the type of stuff he's talking about. Like we lay aside weights, things that are going to slow us down. And if if we think about this spiritual race of faith and what we're called to discard, I think this author is telling them to discard two things. One would be sin, that's explicit. The other, when he's talking about weights, would be distractions, things that maybe aren't inherently sinful, but that are going to distract us. They're going to prevent us from running as we ought to fully. So, He's clearly telling them to lay aside sin, right? He just says it as a singular noun. He doesn't even specify what specific sins to discard. But he's saying sin in general. As a Christian, you are called to lay it aside, to discard it, to get rid of it, to get rid of all of them. Uh, not, there, there's one author who I, I heard referenced a few times this week who would talk about our darling sins. That there's sometimes as Christians, we're willing to discard of almost every sin. We've lost the taste for them. We, we don't see the appeal of them anymore. But sometimes there's like a one sin that we crave so badly, that we uh, desire so much, that we enjoy so deeply, that we are not willing to let it go. And we'll point to all the other things that we've gotten rid of, but that thing I am not going to let go of. That is not a Christian way of living. Like that sin that you are clinging to is a sin that Christ had to die for. That he had to suffer the wrath of God for. And it is not our prerogative. It is not our right to say, I am going to retain that. I am going to hold my grip on that. And we are fools if we think holding on to that is not going to affect us. That it's not going to hinder us. That it's not going to cling closely to us. Did you notice what is clinging to what here? It's sin clinging to us. Like sometimes we think, well, I have a grip on this thing. I could just let it go whenever I want. I could discard it whenever I want. That is not the image here. It's of sin clinging to you. Like, and you have to make effort to get rid of it, to to put it off, to repent of it and cast it aside. That is what we are called to do, to, to remove the impediment of sin. But we're also called to remove weights, right? Weights wouldn't have been sinful. They're not things that are just inherently wrong and immoral to have. But there are things in our life, are there not? If you did a quick inventory of your life, you could probably think of many things, or maybe even just a few, or maybe one major one. But things in your life that aren't inherently sinful, but that nonetheless weigh you down and keep you from running as you ought as a Christian that distract you, that that deter you, that keep your eyes on something else. There may be a hobby that you give an excessive amount of time to. That that pursuit of that thing isn't bad in of itself, but it keeps you from other good pursuits, right? There uh, There may be entertainment that you just binge 
right? That it may be even pure good entertainment in itself in a small volume, but you are giving time and time and time and time to that thing as becoming a weight that is pulling you down. It may be scrolling of social media, right? That the things that we just mindlessly do that it's not inherently bad in and of itself. Maybe even could be used in edifying ways at times, and I hope is. But it becomes a weight and distraction from doing better things, from doing uh, more enduring things. I thought this week, I even talked with my wife about this a bit, just how much I personally feel weighted down by the six-ounce phone that is in my pocket all the time. It's light to pick up. It's heavy upon my soul because I can send messages. I can send emails. I can look on Twitter. I can read articles. I can check sports scores. I can do all these things in it. And none of those are bad things. But it's constantly consuming my mind on certain days. And I, I attend to it again and again and again. And the, the Lord, I don't want to make this a legalistic thing where you need to feel morally obligated to remove every neutral thing in your life. But I think you should evaluate based on this text what might be some things that are starting to serve as weights in my life that I didn't really realize. Maybe I forgot that there are optional weights that I could remove, that by removing them I could actually run better and I could run further as a Christian. There are enough threats to our endurance outside of us that come to us in life that we need to not self-sabotage, right? Where we just willfully take these things upon ourselves to distract us and hold us down. So second thing is to remove all impediments uh, if we are going to keep running with endurance. The third one, though, is going to be to uh, run to Jesus. And just spoiler alert, the fourth one is going to be run like Jesus. Uh, but this author tells us clearly, as we're thinking about endurance and having the ability to run far, that we need to remember in our running that we are running to Jesus. And this is where I want you to see this. There, there is much, as we think about this race that is set before us in verse 1, the end of verse 1, this race that's set before us, there's a whole lot about that race course that we do not know, right? God knows. Like, he's the one who sets up the course of our life before each and every one of us. He has set up that course, and everybody's course in some ways is going to be different Right? There, there's much that we don't know. They may vary in length. Some of us, we may not even realize it yet, but we may be near to the end of our course. They'll vary in length. Uh, they will vary in difficulty, that course. They will, they, they will vary tremendously uh, amongst our lives. We're not given a map in advance, right? Of this is what your life is going to entail. This is exactly when this struggle is going to arrive or when this person is going to hurt you or when your faith is going to feel weak here. We're not given that map in advance. There's a whole bunch we don't know about the race that is set before us. But there is one thing, and there's others, but there is one thing we do know about this course as Christians, and it is who is at the finish line. That is, what we, that is one thing we know for sure. That the finish line of the race of faith that Christians run is the person of Jesus Christ, right? And the author tells us that. He does it a bit indirectly, but he, he tells us that even in this text at the end of verse 2. He says that after Jesus endured the cross, he was then raised, is implied, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And is that not where we are running to as Christians, is to be in God's presence, to, to see him, to be with him in heaven and eventually in the new earth? He is where we are running to. And who is there with God the Father in the flesh, the resurrected Jesus Christ, is there presently. 
And as, as we run the race of faith, the author tells us in verse 2, he says, as we are running with endurance, the race set before us, he says the way we're to do it, the start of verse 2, is looking to Jesus. Like we are to look to him as we run. We are to keep our eyes of faith, our, the eyes of our soul and heart set upon him, the one who is seated on the throne at the right hand of God. And we are to be ever looking for him. I, I learned something this week talking about running. There's a, an event uh, that takes place in the Olympics. That's the only time I ever see it, but it's called the steeplechase. I even know we have family members of some folks who do this at an Olympi Olympic level uh, in our church. But the steeplechase, I learned some of what it is. It's the event like when you see on TV every, couple, every four years where people have to jump over these huge hurdle things and there's like pits of water and stuff like that and you're like what in what in the world is this like where did this come from the way the steeplechase originated was long ago hundreds of years ago I think it originated in England it actually started with horse races to what from what I gather and then humans started doing this as well but they would race from one town to the next town uh, so probably several miles between them. And what would ha the way that they would do that and stay on course is they would start at the church building in one town. And the they, church buildings would usually be built near the, the highest point in a town. And the steeple would go up even higher. It would be like the highest point in a town. And they would start there. And then as they were running to the next town, the finish line essentially would be the steeple, the base of the steeple of that church. Uh, that they would be racing there. And they, they'd have to go down in valleys and jump over creeks and over fences and stuff. That's why that event has developed how it has uh, in modern day. Uh, but the, what, the reason they did it that way, if you could think about this, was so that those horses or the riders or eventually when it was runners, that they could always, because it was such a high point, that even when they got, had to take a turn down or they had to, maybe even if they fell down or something like that and they got disoriented, when they would get up, they would know where to start running again or where to keep running to because they could look up and see where that steeple was. And they know, I need to head that way. <laughs> that is where I need to go. Instead of just guessing, I kind of internally feel like I need to go this way, they'd have something they could look at and know, I need to run there. That's what the steeplechase was. And in the race of Christian faith, we have not just something to look for, but someone to look for and someone to run toward, right? The, the race of Christian faith is not primarily, contrary to what some churches would say, it, it's not primarily running from something. Like we're running away from the wrath of God. We're running away from the world. We're running away from this. We're running away from these people as if we're being chased by something. But the Christian life is more so, I think, to be thought of based on texts like this, of running to something. Of running to someone, more accurately. That we are to fix our eyes, not even just on heaven, he says, but on Jesus. We're to look to him. We're to run toward him. He is the steeple we're chasing, right? Like he is the person that we are pursuing, that we are running toward. And when you run long distances, there is something unique about when you see the finish line. Like when you see the thing that you have been waiting for, the thing, there's often something at the finish line that you are longing for, that you're motivated to kick into gear for. You're wanting this trophy, or you're wanting the applause of someone, or you're wanting to hug someone that's there waiting for you. You're wanting a personal record or something you're you're wanting something as you come to that finish line that motivates you but for us what we are motivated by as we run this race of faith this long distance race of faith 
is to see and to know the presence of and the embrace of Jesus Christ. That is what we long for. That's what we should be longing for as Christians. That is what is going to compel us to keep running. This author talks about in Jesus' life, in verse 2, how there was this joy that was set before him, right? He wasn't just fleeing from something as he endured in faith. There was joy set before him that he was pursuing, that he was longing for, to be back with his Father, to see people redeemed, to see people reconciled to God. There was joy set before him. And the same thing is true of us, that when we're called to run this race of endurance and faith, it's to someday receive the joy of being with God the Father and someday enjoy the embrace and the, 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 the love of Christ personally face to face. There's a joy set before us and we are to continue to run in faith toward Jesus. For some of you, though, I just want to pause and acknowledge, for some of you in the room, you, it's not that you need to keep running to Jesus, some of you in the room have never started running toward Jesus. Like Jesus has not been appealing to you. There, there's nothing desirable in him uh, that you see fit to sacrifice for and to, to give toward of your life, to, to lay off things, to, to run toward. But made, this morning, my prayer for you has been that today would be the day that you begin running toward Jesus. That you would see he is not just some philosophical idea. He is not just some religious viewpoint. But that he is a person. More than that, he is God the Son. Who in spite of your running away from him or ignoring of him. He actually willfully entered into this world as a human being. And what we're going to see here in just a moment. Is he went to the cross to suffer for the sins of people like us, to suffer for our rebellion, to suffer the judgment that we deserve for our rejection of God, our rebellion against him. He went to the cross and endured the suffering of the cross so that we might receive forgiveness. And he was raised from the dead never to die again. And God the Father was showing that sacrifice worked. And he raised him from the dead and brought him back up into heaven to enjoy his reward. And what Jesus offers to you, what he offers to all of us in the room, even those who have never started running toward him, what he offers to you is if you will look to his son Jesus, if you will look to him and trust that he suffered for me, like he died for me, and I believe he was raised from the dead. I trust that he suffered the judgment that should be on me. If you will turn from your sin, you'll lay those sins aside and say, I trust in you, Christ. What he offers to you is forgiveness of all your sin, past, present, future. And he promises that if you run toward him in faith, continue to trust and trust and trust that what Christ is enough, that someday you will be with him in heaven and you will be raised to life. That is someone worth running to. Like, please, I, I would beg of you for the sake of your own soul, stop ignoring Jesus. Stop running away from Jesus. I have prayed for you that today would be the day that you lay aside those sins and you start running toward him. You start down this path that many of us have started on sometimes decades ago, and we run together to Jesus, looking to him again and again and again. He is worthy of your pursuit. And you are in desperate need of him and what he has to offer. And so I would call you today not just to keep running, but to start running. 
But for those of us who have begun running, I, I call us to keep running toward Jesus, keep our eyes on Jesus. What that means, just practically, briefly, to keep our eyes on Jesus, to run to him, uh, I don't think it's rocket science. One of the ways that we keep our eyes on Jesus is to come together with the church, Sunday by Sunday by Sunday by Sunday, uh, to come on the Lord's Day each week as we are able to gather in Christian community to be pointed to Jesus again. Even if we've lost sight of him for six days, may the first day of the week not be that. Uh, we hear in songs and in scripture readings and in prayers, we hear people point us back to the resurrected Jesus, the one who was crucified for us, and we lift our eyes of faith to him again. But in between those weekly rhythms on Sunday, we, are we not to be daily or at least regularly uh, seeking to lift our eyes to Jesus, to set our eyes on him? It's not as if temptation only comes on Sunday. It comes every day of the week, and we need strength to press on in faith and obedience every day of the week. And so we ought to, as we are able, uh, to be gathering with people in our household, or at least be privately, be seeking to lift our eyes to Jesus. And the simplest way to do that is to open up the scriptures, or mentally take your mind to the scriptures, the things that you know are true about Jesus. I, I don't want you so much to be pursuing these like visions of Jesus and all these sorts of things, though he may grant those things to us at times. But the clearest way that we see that we keep our eyes on Jesus is by opening up this book and seeing what has God told us about him, of what he's done and who he is and what's true of him now, what's true of the future. This is where we're going to see him most clearly and where our faith, our endurance is going to be motivated and compelled. So we're to run to Jesus, keeping our eyes on him. The final, the fourth tactic that this author gives us, I already kind of uh, spoiled it for you, but it's not just going to be to run to Jesus, but to run like Jesus, to run like Jesus. And this is seen in, in verses 2 and 3. If we think of chapter 11, as we've used that metaphor that many have of like a hall of faith, a hall of fame of people of faith, I think we are wrong to think that the displays end at the end of chapter 11, right? The, the end of chapter 11 is not the exit door of the hall of faith. There's actually one more display. Uh, there's one more person of faith that we could easily miss, and it's the person of Jesus himself. Jesus, if you want examples of faith, blows Abraham and Moses and Sarah and Enoch and Abel and Noah. He blows all of these people out of the water. He is the exemplar, the pinnacle of what a human being's faith in the face of suffering looks like, isn't he? Is the person of Jesus himself. This display that we see in verses 2 and 3 of the faith of Jesus the endurance of Jesus is the most glorious display of all. It's what all those displays in the hall of faith lead to is this last final one that opens up before us of the faith of Jesus. What he endured, what he went through, right? He uses this language of endurance twice for Jesus, doesn't he? In verse 2, uh, he says that Jesus was, is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what does he say? He endured the cross, right? He uses language of endurance. And then in verse 3, he says to these recipients, and the Spirit would say to us, consider him, Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. 
The endurance of Jesus is remarkable. It is hard for me. I have tried to contemplate and would encourage you to try to contemplate what that looked like and felt like for Jesus. As he came near to the cross, as he experienced the cross, as he endured the cross, think it is easy for us to say, oh, he died for my sins. Like, praise God, hallelujah. But to think of the actual experience of Jesus as a flesh and blood human being like us of what that was like for him, what it was like to come up to that and to hit that wall and to press through it. As he came to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's like, God, if there's any other way, let it be. That's like hitting the wall almost in some ways. Like, I don't know. Not that Jesus would say this, but it's this feeling we can maybe resonate with. I don't know if I can do this. Like, the, the, the pain seems too great. It feels hard for me to even fathom. But Jesus, when he came up to that moment, did not shrink back from the suffering that was before him. But he pressed through. He, and the reason he pressed through is because he trusted his heavenly father. No matter what was about to happen to him, no matter what betrayal would come, no matter what lies would be told about him by the corrupt witnesses, no matter what beating soldiers were going to do, no matter what Pilate was about to, to give to him execution-wise, no matter what that crowd was going to cry out, no matter how bad it was going to hurt when those nails went through his wrists and through his ankles, no matter what that crown of thorns was going to feel like, no matter what it was going to feel like to not be able to breathe, Jesus was willing to endure that for our sake. He was willing to endure it all. He was enduring the wrath of God, right? He was bearing the judgment that should be coming to us. But on top of that, and I think we diminish this. We don't think about this often. He was enduring, he says in verse 3, hostilities from sinners. Like the cross was God punishing Jesus, but it also involved humans doing awful things and saying awful things about our Savior, He was bearing God's wrath for sinners, but he was enduring hostility from sinners as well. And even as Jesus was nailed to the cross, unable to physically move, what he was doing in the spiritual realm was running the race of faith right up to the end. And nobody had gone there before. He was the first, right? He is the pioneer. He is the the founder of, of our faith. He went into territory of suffering that no one ever had and no one ever would. Suffering the wrath of God for sinners. And the author says to consider him. Consider Jesus. Consider his endurance. And he says in verse 3 that you consider Jesus' endurance so that you will not grow weary or faint-hearted. That as you look to the example of Jesus, his perseverance, his going to the end in faith, it should be something that motivates you and compels you to seek to follow in the same footsteps. That no matter what suffering comes to me as a follower of Jesus, no matter when I come up to that wall where I feel like I cannot press on in faith, I have it. If I think I have come to a point in my life, which would be prideful for me to say, but where no one else understands me, I have come to the tipping point that no human being has ever dealt with before. I cannot press on in faith. You cannot say that because Jesus has. Like he has gone before you, has endured things, dare I say, harder than what you have. And he has pressed on in faith. If you want one other example to look to, you have the example of Jesus. There are some uh, in, in certain circles of Christianity who, as they talk about the cross, 
they talk about it almost as if all that was happening there was Jesus setting an example for us. They, they don't like to think of God punishing Jesus. They'll just say, well, the cross was just about Jesus setting an example of how to endure mistreatment, how to, how to just uh, kind of suck it up and endure mistreatment and not strike back. And I think we rightfully uh, correct that viewpoint and say, friend, like there's way more happening at the cross than Jesus setting an example for us. Like he really was suffering in our place. He was suffering the judgment of God on our behalf. But it would be wrong of us to deny that Jesus was setting an example. That is part of what he was doing for us. It was more than that. Like he was doing far more than that of setting an example. But he was setting an example. Don't be mistaken. He was showing us what it is like not just to endure mistreatment, but to endure suffering while trusting our Heavenly Father. That's what he was setting the example for us of, is that no matter what comes my way, I can press on trusting. He trusted God would raise him from the dead, right? And he was willing to stake his life upon it. And he's an example to us that, that we can do the same, that if God deals me an incredibly hard hand in life, and he calls me even to be sacrificed for him in some way as a martyr, if I think of the most extreme things that he could call me to, I can do that. I can rise to that in faith because Christ has done it first. And Christ is more than an example setter, right? Like Noah was an example setter. Enoch was an example setter. Abraham was an example setter. Sarah was an example setter. Jesus was an example setter. But more than that, he is an actual empowerer, right? Noah can't help you, right? Abraham can't help you. Sarah can't help you. The resurrected Jesus can and does help you. He, he was raised from that. He is alive and well and rules over everything, even over your enemies and even over you. And when you have the most intense suffering imaginable, he can help you. He can empower you to endure. He doesn't just sit on the throne of heaven. He has sent his spirit to live in his people to help us press on in endurance to the end, no matter what that entails. So we are to run to Jesus, but we are also to run like Jesus, run in his power, run in the same footsteps that he did of trusting the heavenly father to the end. He is the, what does the text say? He is the perfecter of our faith, right? It's not just that he starts us out and says, good luck, I'll see you all at the finish line. Like he helps us finish. He perfects our faith. He sustains it. He will meet us there, but he empowers us along the way to follow his example of faith in the midst of suffering. So to endure in faith, to keep running, we're to do those four things. To remember our predecessors, to remove all impediments, to run to Jesus, fixing our eyes on him, and to run like Jesus. But I want to, clo in close, closing, make one simple observation from this text that I think we can miss. And there's many texts like this in the New Testament. This is no exception. It's not unique in this way. But I think we can easily, as we think of endurance running, and even as we read a text like this and the call to endure and running the race of faith, we can easily just think of it as an individual thing, as a, I need to run the race with endurance. I'm called to just run solo this, this race of faith. But endurance in the Christian faith is a collective effort. Right? It, it is some, it's not an individual sport. Right? It is a team sport. You aren't called to solo, go run the race of faith to the end. What does he say? Let us run with endurance, right? 
Let us run with endurance. There is something about running with other people that helps you to press on, that helps you to endure, right? Let us run with endurance. And I want to end with one other cross-country shirt I saw one time that illustrates this point. And I've seen this elsewhere as well. And some of you may have heard this before. But there's a a phrase, uh, I think it's an ancient phrase, maybe even uh, where these people said this. They said, if you want to run fast, run alone. But if you want to run far, run together. But if you want to run fast, run alone. If you want to run far, run together. What God calls us to is not to run fast, right? Not run with speed. He says run with endurance. And if you or I are going to truly run with endurance to the end, and to meet our Savior, we are going to need the help of each other. That when we hit that wall, maybe somebody else is feeling strong in that moment. They could say, friend, like, look to Jesus. Like, remember, he's there, and his spirit is in you. Keep running. And maybe sometimes somebody else does that, and you help them. And you, you help pick them back up and say, look to Christ. We're going to keep running. He's gone down this path. These people have gone down this path before us. Let's keep going. Let's keep trusting that what he says is true. But this, in, this endurance we're called to is a team sport, something we're to do together as God's people. So let's run with endurance together. Amen? I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to sing a closing song. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, uh, we are people, as you know, who grow weary and faint-hearted. Some even feel that today. God, I pray that you may help them uh, through what they have heard, through what we sing, through what others even share with them today, that they may be lifted up by you. They may be lifted up by us and pointed to your son. Uh, to press on in faith, to keep running, to keep trusting you, even through difficulty, even through hardship. God, may we uh, grow in our thankfulness for those who've gone before us, but also for those who are with us in this race now. And may we collectively run with endurance the race you have marked out for us. Uh, Father, even as we sing this song, may you be honored, may our faith be built up. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.